keep your Bible open to Ephesians. <coughs> mm. Here we go. Let me pray. Father, your word is sufficient. We pray that you would help us to trust it, to love it, and to obey it. Amen. You probably heard it said that there are two kinds of people in this world. Right? You've heard it said that, that there are doers and there are thinkers. You know, so you think about uh, academics who sit in their ivory towers with their suede patches on their jackets and they argue about just war theory. That's, those are the thinkers. In contrast, you have the pacifists who are the protesters or you have the, you know, the guys who actually go out and they fight the wars. You have the soldiers. But just in that, you see that some people think about war. Some people either protest and do it. Thinkers and doers. I think when it comes to living the Christian life, this overly binary way of thinking is, is not helpful. It's an oversimplification and it just won't do. In order to live faithfully for Jesus as his followers, both individually and corporately, we have to be people who think well and who do well. We must not only be faithful thinkers, but faithful actors. We, we can't eschew thought, theology and doctrine uh, for the sake of action because our theology and our doctrine is what informs our action. What we think and believe about God and man and the gospel these are the thoughts that influence the kinds of actions that we take as Christians. And we can't just sit around thinking all the time, just staring at books. We actually have to move. We have to do something in light of what we believe to be true. Theologians talk about this using two phrases, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right? Orthodoxy is our right belief. Orthopraxy is our right practice or our right actions in light of what we believe. You, you've probably heard me say in this church that we must not only love God's word, but we must believe God's word, think rightly about God's word, and obey God's word. Well, that flows out of this kind of sentiment. And so as you read the book of Ephesians, as we have been doing for the past couple of months, you see that Paul spends the first three chapters digging into the theology and doctrine. He's, he's trying to shape the, the thought life of the Christians in Ephesus. He's, he's giving them an identity. He's teaching them how to think about God and how to think about themselves and how to think about the gospel and how all of that works together. And now, as we transition together into chapter four, we're reaching a turning point in the book. Paul shifts from teaching that is almost entirely doctrinal in nature to teaching that demands a response. Right? Teaching that requires his hearers to act, to do something. He begins a set of exhortations. Uh, if you're not familiar with the term exhortation, that's okay. It's, it's a call to action. Sometimes it's, it's more of a warning. Sometimes it's more of an encouragement. But either way, it's a, hey, in light of what I'm saying, you need to do this. And that's what Paul begins to do here in this, in this second half of the book. So if you have it open, you can even look at chapter, uh, chapter four, verses one through six. Paul begins an exhortation about living out the unity of the gospel together in Christ. If you go down to verse 22, Paul begins his set of exhortations about putting off and putting on, you know? Don't do this, do do that. If you look in verse 25, Paul exhorts his readers to practice holy speech. If you look in verse 28, Paul tells his readers to use their hands to bless and to not steal. And we can just keep going on and on and on, not just throughout the rest of chapter four, but throughout the rest of the book. 
Now, this is not to say that there's no theology and no doctrine in the second half of the book. It's only to say that there's a, a shift that is taking place. In the first half, Paul has given them the content of the gospel. And now Paul is saying in the second half, listen, if what I've just written to you is true, then that means something for your life. You have to live a certain way in light of this truth. If, if God has called you into his holy nation, then as citizens of that nation with that identity, you, you have to live how nation, uh, citizens in this nation live. If God has called you and uh, chosen you and adopted you into his family, well, this is how we live as part of God's family. Now, <clears throat> as we move into the rest of the sermon, I just want to prepare people who are used to sitting in on sermons at 6th Avenue. This morning's sermon is going to feel a little different than most sermons do. We, we practice expositional preaching, which means we usually just walk through a book of the Bible together, and that's normally sequential. Uh, and we, we usually have our noses pretty close to the text, right? There, there are a couple different ways you can understand what's going on in the Bible. Sometimes you can, you can zoom all the way in, and you can just focus on a word, and you can study that word, and uh, understanding what that word means will help you understand the meaning of the author when he's writing whatever he's writing about. Sometimes you can look at a sentence or a group of sentences, right, and you can follow a logical train of thought and you can kind of get at the meaning of the text in that way. But sometimes you have to zoom out and you have to stand back a little bit, okay? And the purpose of doing that is to get your nose a little bit away from the text so that you can maybe discern a larger pattern at play, and that's going to be what we're going to do this morning. We're, we're not going to be necessarily looking at words and sentences and groups of sentences. We're, we're going to step back and, and look at a picture to kind of see a pattern. Uh, an admittedly terrible illustration for this is, uh, do you guys remember those posters back in the 90s or the 80s where like there were squiggly lines and there was no discernible pattern, but if you step back and you kind of squinted your eyes a little, right, you could say, oh, that's a unicorn, right? That's kind of what we're doing here. But don't squint too hard, okay? I think it's pretty obvious from the text what I'm going to bring out of the text. It's just going to feel a little different, but I still think it's from God's word and it's important for us to see. So <clears throat> as I study this text, uh, let me tell you the pattern that I see uh, as we move from the first three chapters into the fourth chapter. I see Paul doing three things for the church in Ephesus. I see him giving instruction, offering intercession, and exhortation. Or, said more simply for your notes, Paul teaches, Paul prays, and Paul exhorts. Paul teaches, Paul prays, and Paul exhorts. Now, those are going to be your three points for the sermon this morning. Uh, but before we even dive into those points, I, I want to do something else real quick. I want to lay a little bit more of a foundation for the text, okay? Um, there's a lot of pseudo-wisdom in the world, you know, uh, phrases uh, that people say, and you're like, oh, that kind of sounds good initially, but then when you dig deeper into it, you're like, ah, maybe that's not the wisest thing. It's actually funny, there's somebody here this morning who I've actually had this very conversation with, and I did not have that person in mind as I wrote this sermon, and yet here they are, okay? Uh, one, one sort of phrase of pseudo-wisdom is people are not projects, right? You've probably heard that said before, and that sounds good, right? You're like, yeah, people aren't projects, you know, take the baking soda, you take the vinegar, you pour it in the hole, and now you have a volcano, right? Well, people are more complex than that, okay? You think about building a treehouse, you know, people, you, you can't just put people together the way that you put a treehouse together. Uh, I think it's probably helpful to say that people are not mere 
projects, okay? But I think we have to say that in a very real sense, people are projects. So let me start with parents. Parents, I think it's safe to say that most of you view your children as projects. Not mere projects, but projects nonetheless, right? You have goals for your children. You see where your children are now, and you see where you would like your children to be one day, right? Hopefully mature, full of virtue and character. And if you're a Christian, your hope for your children, your greatest hope for your children is that they come to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And so you, you, you try to build them up, and you move them in that direction, and you give all of yourself and your resources towards those purposes and ends, okay? You try to lead them along that path. You have a goal in mind. The same thing is true of pastors and church members. You know, I, I can think about uh, brand new baby Christians who come to the church. I look at them and I go, oh, yeah, we need to get you up into maturity. Or we think about people who actually get saved in the life of this church. And, and we love people just the way that they are, you know, young and immature babies who need milk and not meat. And we love the little babies, but we're not content for them to stay little babies, right? We want them to eventually get out of pampers. Okay, I'm stretching the metaphor here, but you get what I'm saying. We want to grow people up into maturity. Paul talks about this when he says, for this, by this time you ought to be teachers, yet you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oral, oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. The project has gone awry. The development is not taking place as it ought to. You can think about Elders in the church seeking to train up other faithful men, like 1 Timothy 2.2. 2. I look at a man in the church and I go, ah, you're the kind of guy that might could be an elder, but you're not ready to be an elder now. So I'm going to pour into you, I'm going to train you, and the other elders are going to do the same thing, and we're going to try to raise you up to a point where you will one day be ready to be an elder. You are a project in that sense. Wives. Come on now, don't leave me hanging here, okay? What I'm about to say, I, I, I'm a little nervous, but I'm just going to go for it. Women tend to view their husbands as like long-term projects, right? You know what I'm saying? I mean, a lot of women tend to marry men thinking, hey, he's a fixer-upper, you know? But, you know, you give me two years. I think we could work with this. And really, you know, then they really get to know how bad the situation is. The plumbing is completely destroyed. The floor needs, you know, they're like, okay, give me 20 years. I think I can work with this, right? But women tend to view their husbands this way, right? Uh, kind of this long-term, my conscience is clear before God as I teach this, by the way. My conscience is totally clear. Okay. There are two areas where we get into trouble when we talk about this. Number one is when we treat people like they're mere projects, right? That they can just be manipulated, that we can just set goals and, and add a budget and have certain leadership and we can get them from point A to point B. And, just, and then we treat them that way. The second way that we can get into trouble is when we forget that every single person is God's project right? God is the main workman. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 that God is the workman and we are his workmanship. He is shaping us and molding us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, but he uses other people and things to accomplish that. Um, Paul tells Timothy that he's a workman. He says, make every effort to present yourself approved to God as an unashamed workman. So you're a workman and you need to be trained up and prepared and you need to make sure you're actually living out your full potential as a workman. But Timothy is a workman in the same way that I'm a shepherd, right? So as a pastor, me and the other elders in this church, we are shepherds. <coughs> but ultimately, Jesus is the true shepherd, right? So we're all just kind of apprentice shepherds under Jesus who is our true shepherd. Well, that's kind of true of all of us as we are workmen 
and we are working on people in our lives, whether that's evangelistically or through discipleship relationships with our children or our husbands or our wives, we are underworkmen. You know, we're working, but God is doing all of his work through us. He is changing people, and he's just using us in order to accomplish his good purposes. We are instruments in the hands of our Redeemer, to quote one theologian. If we remember that God is the main workman, that he's the main one who elicits change in his people, then I think we'll probably be less inclined to make these kinds of foolish mistakes that make people feel like they're just projects and that they're not loved and cared for. Now, you may be wondering, Sean, why are you spending so much time trying to argue this point and make this point? Well, it's because as I stood, as I sat and stared at this text this week, I just could not escape the reality that the church is a project of God. God is working to build up his church for his good purposes and pleasure. So look at chapter 4, starting in verse 11. It says, (coughs) And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Right? So there's a church and this is the way it is, but God has a goal, a vision for where he wants it to be, and so he is working to accomplish that end. He is working on this project, this thing called the church. And he does it by giving pastors and teachers who train and equip the members who do ministry, and then they build each other up in love. You can keep going. Look at verses 15 and 16. He says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From him the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's project. It's a church, but it's composed of individuals. And we're gonna come back to this as we continue to preach through the book of Ephesians. But what I want us to see this morning is that Paul understands that the church is a project and he understands himself to be a tool in the hands of God in order to build the church up into health. So what we're gonna look at this morning is the pattern that I see in Paul's ministry as he labors to build up this project called the church. And I think the three main things that he does, I already told you, he teaches, he prays, and he exhorts. So with that in mind, let's get into the points. Point number one. Paul teaches. You know, uh, I think the reason why Paul teaches is because he knows that people are not widgets, right? They, people cannot just be manually manipulated and, and adjusted. Power tools can't fix us. They can't make us more like Jesus. We actually need to have our hearts and our minds transformed. Uh, Paul is not looking for behavior modification from the church in Ephesus, Uh, he would not be content to merely see the people in Ephesus stop lying and cheating and stealing and getting drunk and living in sexual immorality if they were just doing it outwardly, but there was never any sort of inward heart change. I used to talk about nominal Islam. If you don't know what nominal means, it just means like in name only. And so I would talk about people who were nominally Islamic. That is, they didn't actually follow the practices of their holy book and what their prophet said. And I used to talk that way until a brother corrected me once and he said, brother, that's not helpful because nominal Muslim is redundant. 
because to be Muslim is, does not require any conversion. It doesn't require any heart change. All you have to do is profess that Allah is God, that Muhammad is his prophet, and then you just change your behaviors. You, you stop doing this, you start doing that. You practice the five pillars of Islam and you are Islamic. Untold millions have been converted to Islam through force because there doesn't require a heart change. There's no heart change required in order to become a Muslim. But in Christianity, there is such thing as nominalism. People who profess to be Christians but who have had no real heart change, who are only outwardly conformed. You know what I'm talking about. You live in the South. You get it. But in Christianity, we believe that to be a Christian, somebody's heart has to actually be changed. We're not just looking for behavior modification. You can put a gun to somebody's head and get them to tell the truth. You can give people medication and get them to stop drinking. It makes them sick if they take it and then they drink. You can put a chastity belt on someone and get them to stop committing outward expressions of sexual immorality. But that's not what Jesus is after. You remember when Jesus was talking about things like adultery and murder. He said, it's not enough that you don't murder your brother. You actually have to love him in your heart. It's not outward, it's inward. Paul knows that behavior modification is superficial. It's often temporary. And it is always burdensome. And it is not at all pleasing to God. Paul knows that because he was the Pharisee of Pharisees. That was the world that he came from. What Paul wants is for the church in Ephesus to be a people who love Jesus and who love each other so much that they want to change. That it is their heart's deepest desire to be holy unto God. And so he teaches them. He teaches them big, beautiful, glorious truths of the gospel. He takes them up into the stratosphere of the gospel where anyone who loves Jesus Christ loses their breath as they behold the wonders of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. So this morning, I just want us to go back and look again at chapter one, verses three through 14. I want us to behold together the things that Paul has taught the church in Ephesus. This vision he has given them. <clears throat> Starting in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance. And what a sweet inheritance it is. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, you Gentiles, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance 
until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Do you see it? Paul is helping his people through this teaching behold something glorious that will change them as they behold it. Go to chapter two, verses one through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Such bad news. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, even when we hated him, when we were his enemies, he loved us and he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. You can't do this. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, this big, beautiful gospel is what Paul is holding up before the eyes of the Ephesians, and he's saying, look at this, listen to this, behold your God. How can you look at this and not be changed by it? How can you look at this and still live the lives that you used to live? How can you continue to lie and cheat and steal and drink and use your bodies for sin when this is true, when, when God has done this for you? Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says that we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, the glory of this gospel, we are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory. Dead religion says you need to behave. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, the pattern of Paul's ministry says you need to behold. You have to stop what you're looking at and you have to look at something so glorious that it will transform you as you behold it. To try to behave without beholding we'll find ourselves in a sort of dead moralism, a religion that is not at all pleasing to Christ. Moralism, behavior modification, they can't change us in the way that we need to be changed. Moralism only knows how to bring about change by throwing a rope around somebody's neck, tightening it, and then dragging them down the road. But these gospel truths that we read in the first half of Ephesians, they're like a, a grace bomb that detonates behind us and the shock waves of the blast propel us forward into holy living. It's what Christ has done, not what you must do. 
And if you don't understand the difference, you won't understand the gospel. In all of this, we come to know this and understand this as we are taught. Paul had to teach the Ephesians these things. So brothers and sisters, we need good teachers. We need teachers in the church. We need men who will rightly divide the word of truth as pastors and teachers. The church needs teachers who will preach the whole counsel of God and not at all be ashamed for the things that God himself is not ashamed about, like the doctrines of hell and biblical manhood and womanhood and a hundred other things that the culture is offended by. The church needs teachers who will not give in to the fear of man and water the gospel down. The church needs teachers who will protect the gospel. The church needs Levites, like in Nehemiah chapter eight, who stand up, read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and give the sense so that the people may understand. The church needs Titus two women who will teach what is good to younger women. The church needs women like Lois and Eunice who will teach and train young Timothys in Sunday school. The church needs women like Priscilla who will pull aside Apollos' and help them to better understand the gospel. The church needs parents who will diligently teach their children the ways of God as commanded in Deuteronomy chapter six. The church needs husbands who will wash their wives with the water of the word. The church needs members who will speak the truth to one another in love. The church needs members to be here and be present to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another as a way of edifying the body and teaching, mutually teaching. This church is full of people who need to have their minds transformed, as Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 12, by the faithful communication of God's word. The church needs to be a place full of not only Bible reading, but reading of good books by faithful saints who have come before us and who have taught us many good things that we need to know in order to help us behold. Teaching, teaching, teaching. Publicly, privately, in the home, in the church, with tears, in gladness, shallow studies, deep studies, nerdy studies, hard words, words of encouragement, Bible studies, Sunday school, small groups, one-on-one discipleship, in person, through a book. We must be a people who seek change in the life of the church through the teaching of God's word. Clearly, faithfully, forcefully, lovingly, joyfully, and consistently. Now, having said all that, teaching is not enough. So we come to point two. Paul prays. I wish that every graduate from like Bible college or seminary would receive two pieces of paper. One piece of paper that's, you know, their diploma or whatever, and their second piece of paper written in big, bold, black letters that says, teaching is not enough. The average seminarian comes out of school after studying three to five years. Their head is 20% larger in circumference than your average male of the equivalent age. And because they are just so full of knowledge and they think they're gonna go and pastor a church and they're just gonna teach everything into perfection. (laughs) Doesn't work like that. Human beings are not mere data receptacles. We are not software programs. You can't simply add new data to our algorithms and watch our behaviors change accordingly. I cannot tell you how many times I thought for sure if I just sat down with somebody and showed them the information that I had that they would respond appropriately. 
And it almost never happens that way. You've probably experienced the same phenomena in your life. In order for real change to take place, God must take the balm of truth that we receive through faithful teaching and he himself must work it into our hearts like a chef working over that turkey, trying to get the seasoning and the flavor deep down into the meat. You know what I'm talking about. And Paul knows that only God can do this for the Ephesian Christians. And so he prays. Do you remember earlier in our sermons through Ephesians, we've seen that so far Paul takes two different places to stop and to pray for the Ephesians. One of them is in chapter one, verses 15 through 18. Look there with me. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power towards us who believe. Again in chapter three, verses 14 through 19, turn there with me. Paul says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name and I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. If you step back and you look at Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, you see that Paul is trying to teach the Ephesians to help them understand the love of God and the power of God. And then he has two separate prayers where he prays, Lord, help them to understand your love and Lord, help them to understand your power. Paul teaches, but then he prays. He communicates, he does his part. But then he says, God, I need your help. I need you to do something here. I do this all the time. Not because I'm great, precisely the opposite. I do it because I recognize how weak I am. I mean, I, I feel weak all the time. I can't even begin to front. Like, I feel weak all the time. I cannot tell you how many times I walk into a counseling situation or walk away from a Bible study or a Sunday school lesson, and I just feel like, Lord, if you don't do something with that teaching that just took place, nothing will be done. And that's just when I feel weak. Most of the time, you guys recognize my weakness, and I'm thinking I'm doing great. I know how sinful I am. I know how little wisdom I possess. I understand the deceitfulness of sin. I've tasted of the schemes of Satan. And I feel so desperate for God's help. So that's why usually right as I go into a time of teaching, or right after I get done and I come out of it, I just go to God in prayer, and I say, Lord, please help me. Take what I just did, whatever it was, however good or true or right it was, you take it and work it into your people's hearts. Parents, this is really what your life is like, right? You spend so much time teaching, teaching, 
Deuteronomy 6, as you get up in the morning, as you walk by the way, as you go down at night, you got stuff all over your house, you know, crocheted on your little pillows, the wrath of God. Well, no, maybe that's not the verse you have on your pillows, but. And it seems like these issues with our children are getting more and more complicated, you know, as if it wasn't hard enough to be a parent. Now we're having to explain things that we just never thought we would have to explain. And we never feel super confident. You know, we never feel like, man, I really said the perfect thing there. Or if we did say the right thing, we never feel like, man, I really said it in the right way. And even if we did that, you know, you sit and you talk to your kids and they're just, you know, they're just not even looking at you. Look at me, look at me, look at me. And they're just looking right past you, right? You just, you're not sure that anything you're saying is doing anything other than going in one ear and out the other. And so we have to go to God and we have to cry out to God and we say, Lord, please, I'm teaching, I'm doing my part. I need you to move here. I need you to do something. I need you to take whatever little pathetic, feeble teaching I just gave my kids, make it real in their lives, apply it to their hearts. In evangelism efforts, we often feel helpless, right? You're talking with somebody and they, they have some question you've never heard before. They bring up some objection to Christianity you've maybe never dealt with. You try your best to respond in the moment, but you realize like, you know, ah, man, I don't think I handle that well. I'm not equipped to handle that. And you just feel in those moments helpless. Well, friends, I would encourage you in those moments to go to God because he can make something out of nothing. He can use your, what is in my case, oftentimes pathetic attempts to evangelize and he can make it real. I can tell you stories of people who've gotten saved in the most unexpecting ways possible. What people, I never thought they would get saved. They were saved. The people that we thought we did a great job, we crushed it, we nailed it, they, they never come around, you know? In marriage, sometimes one spouse is doing better spiritually than another spouse, so there's a lot of teaching, right? But man, is there, is there enough praying to go along with that? You know, sometimes when we're trying to help our spouses get to a certain place, we can teach and teach and teach and teach, and pretty soon teaching is no longer an expression of love. It's a club that we bludgeon our spouses with. And the solution to that would be to remember that God needs to change our spouses, that we can't do it through our own wisdom and our own teaching. And so a little less teaching and a little bit more praying will go a really long way. You remember when Jesus was talking to the disciples in Matthew 16 and he goes, all right, pop quiz. Who, everybody get out a single sheet of paper, write your name at the top. No, he doesn't do that. He says, hey, who do people say that I am? And uh, you know, they go through the rigmarole and then finally Peter raises his hand, you know. Jesus says, who do you think I am? And Peter raises his hand and he says, yeah, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, if you remember, as you're walking through the book of Matthew up to this point, Jesus has been communicating his identity throughout the entire book, and he's been accompanying it with signs and miracles. So you would expect Jesus to respond after he gets it right by saying, yeah, exactly, glad, I'm glad you're paying attention, finally. But he doesn't respond like that. He responds like this, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. What? Jesus, in the flesh, in the blood, has been teaching them these things for his entire ministry. But it has not been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Jesus does not take the credit for teaching the disciples about his identity. He gives the credit to the Father who worked that truth into their hearts. 
As Bible-believing Christians, we have to affirm the dual truths that man is responsible and that God is sovereign. Teaching is the proof that we believe in our responsibility to communicate God's truth. Prayer is the proof that we believe in God's sovereignty and his ability to actually change people's hearts with the words that we communicate. It's one of the reasons why we pray so much as elders in this church. Because we just know. You know, a good, a good question for us as elders though is, you know, are we praying enough? I don't think we're ever in danger of that. I know when we get together we pray a lot, but what about individually? When we go into a difficult counseling session, we're about to have a conversation with a member about something, you know, are we praying before, are we praying after, before we teach? We could probably do better. Mom, dad, how are we doing here? You know, being a parent, it's, it's really hard. It's full of joy and wonder, but also stress and anxiety. What are we relying on to see our children moved along the path of holiness? Are we, are we just relying on ourselves and our own ability to communicate, or are we trusting in God? <clears throat> Sometimes when you're preparing a sermon, it feels like you're doing open heart surgery uh, on yourself. As I was writing that last little portion about, uh, about moms and dads, ah, this is a rough morning for crying for me. I was just thinking about my kids and how much I love them and how little I pray for them, you know? So I just want to confess to you guys and to my wife and to tell you, like, I'm in this with you. Let's do better. We have to do better. This verse gave me great comfort as I was thinking about this. Philippians 4, 6, as it pertains to our role as parents. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Okay, finally, moving on. Exhortation, point number three. So Paul has taught, and he'll keep teaching. Paul has prayed, and he'll keep praying. But now, Paul must call his hearers, or his readers, to action. You know, there's a kind of preaching out there and a kind of teaching that we should be very wary of. I'm talking about like the doctrinally anemic teaching. There's just, it's just all a whole bunch of application. This is what you need to do. It's just life principles. This is how you live your life. But none of it has the sort of stuff that we see in Ephesians 1 through 3. It demands something of us without giving us the theology that puts the wind in our sails and the current underneath our boat. But we also have to be very, very careful, perhaps even more careful in our church because we rightly understand the value of doctrine and theology, of teaching that is only teaching and that never demands something of our lives, that never calls us to action. You remember what James said? He said, be not hearers of the word only, but doers of the word. And this is a massive danger in theologically sound churches. You know, we sit around in our circles reading our theologians and our Bibles and we pat ourselves on the back and we're feeling so good because we have all of our little doctrinal ducks in a row. But there has to be more than that. We actually have to do something with what we know in our hearts to be true. We have to remember that Knowing what Jesus means when he says, pick up your cross and follow me, is not the same thing as picking up our crosses and following Jesus. We have to remember that being able to teach a Bible study on what it means to die to self is not the same thing 
as dying to ourself. We have to remember that it's so much easier to explain what the text means when it says to love your enemies than it is to actually love your enemy. Anybody could teach it, but we need divine help to be able to do it. And so Paul begins chapter four with exhortation. In verse one of chapter four, Paul says this, he exhorts the Christians, the Ephesian Christians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called, right? This is Paul basically saying, hey, you have to live, uh, walk, live, kind of synonymous. Walk was a Palestinian colloquialism, right? Walk, live like this is true. Live lives that are consistent with the gospel that you profess to believe. It's so easy to profess to be a Christian, to profess to believe the gospel, but to never submit to Jesus and what he demands of our lives. When you look at the Great Commission, notice the language of the Great Commission. He says, teach them, so there's the intellectual, that's what Paul's been doing in one through three, teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. We have to do. Jesus is not content with our great commission work if we just merely go out and teach people information about Jesus. He is king and he is Lord and his kingdom is blossoming in this earth and that demands a response from his subjects. For those who know him, it demands a response in love in light of what he's done to bring us into that kingdom. You see this concept played out in the membership of our church at Sixth Avenue. We have a statement of faith, which is the summary of what we think uh, the most important teachings of the Bible are. And then we have the church covenant, which is how we agree to live together in response to that teaching. What we know to be true about the gospel, how are we now going to live? If this is true, this is how we have to live. And I think that's why it's so significant that Paul reminds his readers yet again that he is a prisoner for the sake of Christ. If you're keeping count, that's twice in the letter. It's like, okay, Paul, we get it. You know, don't be that guy. We get it. You're in prison for the sake of Christ. But it's actually pretty significant. It feels like he says it again right before this laundry list of exhortations because he's saying, I've got skin in the game. I'm not on the sideline. I'm not an armchair quarterback as I'm telling you to live your life fully for the sake of Jesus and submit every area of your life I'm telling you this as someone who is in prison for the sake of the gospel as someone who is about to die for Jesus I think that adds weight to his exhortation right nobody wants to be taught by somebody who doesn't do it themselves we have some People who work out with us, we used to have more. We kind of ran them off, but <laughs> one of the things that everybody in our gym knew is that if Sean ever programs you a crazy workout that seems impossibly difficult, Sean's gonna do it. I'm referring to myself in third person now, but here we go. And I do that because I want people to know that I'm never gonna ask you to do something that I wouldn't do myself. And I think that's what we see from Paul, right? Paul here, is, he's demanding a lot from the Ephesians. He's saying, I get it. I'm in prison for the gospel. Jesus, uh, sorry, I think we see the same pattern of teaching, praying, and exhorting in the life and ministry of Jesus, right? Jesus called the disciples to himself, and then he spent three years, and they were with him, learning from him. He was teaching them. 
We don't know much about his prayer life throughout the entirety of his ministry, like when he would go and be alone in a quiet place, but I assume that Jesus prayed for his disciples. I mean, this was kind of his main gig. It would be weird if he didn't pray for them. Uh, We know that Jesus tells Peter, hey, listen, I've prayed to you that the Lord would restore you after you fall. In John chapter 17, we have an entire chapter in the Bible, uh, which, oh, did we not do scripture reading this morning? Did we miss it? Oh, that's a bummer. Okay. John chapter 17, which we almost read this morning together, which shows us the way that uh, Jesus is reinforcing his teaching of the disciples before he goes and leaves them by praying for them. But Jesus didn't stop with prayer. Before Jesus left, he called the disciples to action. He called them to live out the gospel and the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And this exhortation still stands for us today, brothers and sisters. In light of everything that Jesus has taught us and in light of his prayers for his disciples, we must now live out this truth. I still remember being a a young Christian. I had just come out of some wacky theology and I started wrestling with the doctrine of hell. You know, is it true? Do people really go to hell? I don't want it to be true. But after wrestling for a pretty good while, I came to believe that what the Bible taught about hell was real, that it exists. It's a place of conscious eternal torment for those who are separated from Christ. And as I came to that conclusion, just a light went off for me. I just realized everything about my life has to be different. If this is true, then I have to change my life accordingly. I can't just chase the American dream. I have to start using my time, my talent, and treasure towards the ends of the Great Commission. And that looks one way for me, it may look another way for you. But if the gospel is real, your life has to be changed by it. The way you live must adjust accordingly. So do you think this way? If you say, yes, Sean, the gospel is real to me and my life is lived out in accordance with it, is... Can you point to things in your life as evidence of that? Not as a sort of braggadocio, not like, not not trying to show off. You don't have to do it for me or for anybody, but just ask yourself in your heart. Can I point to this area of my life and that area of my life and this area of my life and say, yeah, I can see that all these things have been changed in light of the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think that's what Paul's doing, right? He's pointing to his imprisonment. He's saying it's real to me. I can think about so many examples in the life of this local church where I've seen people change and make significant sacrifices in light of the gospel. Think about Grant nearly putting himself into adrenal fatigue to shepherd this church for 18 months. I think about Blaine making the decision to sacrifice what was almost certainly a more flourishing social life, moving away to a different city to stay here and to help support this ministry. I love you, brother. I'm so thankful for you. I think about young couples like the Farmers and the Johnsons who have made the decision to be in this church and have counted the cost in order to do so in light of the truth and the reality of the gospel. I think about newer families who are driving like an hour to be here because they're tired of playing church because the gospel is real to them and that matters. And I could, I could keep going. But my prayer for this church as we take the next three chapters uh, seriously is that we will be faithful to live out what the gospel demands of our lives. Not legalistically, not moralistically, 
but because of what God has done for us in Christ through the power of his Holy Spirit. And let me start by praying for that now. Father, we pray that you would help us to know and love and to obey these truths. We thank you for the work that you're doing in this church and we pray that you will continue to move for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. Amen. Amen. Please stand as we sing together. On Christ the solid rock I stand.